keep your eyes and ears open, keep your mouth closed and write everything down. Write it down 10 times, remember it all, store it somewhere, eventually it'll come up. It's the same like you can get a black belt when you're five years old. It doesn't mean you're beating somebody who's 30 year old black belt. You got, it's gonna take time to develop all the skills. Be patient. Welcome to the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Turk. Join me as we dive into the personal stories of some of the world's best hospitality professionals. We follow the journey of their ups, downs, and wild turns to find out what it truly takes to make it in the amazing world of hospitality. This episode is brought to you by our podcast partners at Real-Time Reservation. Their inventory management system is best in class for hotels and resorts to manage their non-room inventory. The web-based application allows for creative upselling of overnight and daytime visitors with add-ons and pre-planned packages. Hotel guests and non-guests can reserve cabanas, pool chairs, activities, amenities, excursions, events, day passes, and much more. The real-time reservation platform offers a fully integrated pre-arrival portal where guests are verified through the property management system. Guests can prepay for cabanas and activities through credit card integrations, which are then processed through point of sale. All of our listeners that might be interested in using real-time reservation are welcome to explore the demo at realtimereservation.com. Once again, that's realtimereservation.com. Welcome to another episode of the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. Today, I'm excited to have Evan Pachowski, Chief Operating Officer of the Lure Group, here with us today. Evan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Steve. Well, Evan, you've heard the podcast and we jump in right away. What mm -hmm. was your first job in hospitality? I was a, uh, I was a server at a, a little place called Mom's Golden Griddle in Manalapan, New Jersey. Wow. Basically, it's exactly how it sounds. Breakfast was the busiest time. And me as a 17 or 18 year old trying to get me up at six o'clock in the morning to get there was a fight every day. But after working for that entire shift and sweating and getting burned and all the good stuff that happens in the, in the little small restaurant, I saw how much money I was making. And I was like, oh, if I'm making this much, how much is the company making? Mm. And so for me, I started to get intrigued by the business side of it. The owners there were incredible people uh, and really started to kind of take me under their wing a little bit and kind of show me some things that maybe a 17, 18 year old kid probably shouldn't have seen. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm really thankful for it. And I think it's helped springboard my entire career. So I was going to ask you about that because we've had a lot of people on the show that start just like you do. But at mm -hmm. 16, 17, 18 years old in a diner, you're with grown women and men was there certain mm -hmm. things that you were shocked to see at first or was it like all right i'm used to this <laughs> no i was i wasn't i wasn't ready for any of it to be honest with you i was kind of thrown in the fire i may have lied when i first got there and said i was the server before and then i i, I saw i saw it all i saw people that were using this as a means to pay their bills and support their family mm -hmm. i saw people that were that were using this as an opportunity to move out of their home and start a life for themselves. And I was also see people that were uh, there to learn uh, uh -huh. very much like I was, and just to learn a little bit about the business, to learn about all the different positions of the restaurant 
and to learn exactly what it takes to be successful. So when you're there and you're graduating high school, are you telling your parents like, this is what I want to do? I want to be in hospitality or did you <laughs> want to do something else with your life? And now, you know, it took me being really bored in some classes in college to really get the kick in the butt that I needed. I was, uh, I was an accounting major and I would sit through some of the classes and I would stare at the teacher and just say, can I see myself doing this for the rest of my life? And I, and I couldn't, and I couldn't. So that was a pivotal moment for me. And thankfully my parents were very supportive of my decision and very supportive of the change you know, I think my parents initially were like, oh, my son's going to be an accountant. And now, ironically, I stare at spreadsheets for 80% of my day and, yep. and I analyze numbers <laughs> like an accountant would. So, right. you know, you're fa you kind of fast forward in the future. But uh, back then, it was a tough decision to make. One that I'm obviously very thankful for, uh, provided a life for both myself and my entire family. So how did that change come? What did you do? Like I, I've, I kind of had that too. Like my dad is an attorney and I remember I was studying for the LSAT. I was like, man, this is just not what I want to do. And I loved working in hotels in high school. Is that what happened to you? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was kind of like, uh, okay, I have to figure this out, you know? And uh, I, again, I go back to the guys from mom's golden griddle and they were showing me the books and showing me the end of day reports and showing me like what we're what this was and i was like i know what these numbers mean because i know accounting and i know what this i know what this is because my personality is such is such about like being hospitable in general uh you know even in my in my house my we'd always have family over and i'd always be helping out in the kitchen and always be helping to serve tables cleaning up this became a natural part of who i was that as soon as it was like I was put in a position to do that for other people, uh, it was it was eye opening for me, and that was initially what what drove me to do it. And then obviously having my parents' support uh, was the next best thing. I love hearing that. It's always good to have the support of the, the parents, so you don't feel like you're letting anybody down. <laughs> so, do you end up finishing college, or do you say, "Hey, I'm just going to go start working in in hospitality"? Oh, I moved away from accounting as quick as I possibly could, and said, mm -hmm. "This is the direction for me." Did a, did a little bit of time to get some formal training, took some classes at like a Johnson Wales University down in North Miami, yep. just to kind of get some some fundamentals under my belt. Mm -hmm. um, and then ultimately it was like back into the grind. How do I how do I take this? How do I learn from every position that I'm working? I want to start in the kitchen. I want to learn how to be the person that makes the salads and get the timing right for that. And I want wow. to learn that person that works on the grill and does all these different stations in the kitchen. And then ultimately, once I understood that, and obviously with some of the training that I had, I was able to pick it up pretty quickly. And I was, I was an ambitious guy, so I moved right to be like an expediter in the kitchen. And that for me was like, that was the first sense of like control I had over the dance that is the hospitality industry. And so where was that? Where, cause you said North Miami, I'm, we're here in Miami. And so yeah. were you starting to work out here in Miami or did you have to move and go somewhere? And you, no, you I, worked, doing that? I worked at a place. It's not, a, I don't think it's around anymore. Uh, God, we're talking about in the late nineties. So if anything is in North Miami from the late nineties, like an institution. <laughs> The place was called uh, Gusto's. Gusto's. Uh, I don't know if it's still there. It's like Hollandale Beach Boulevard and uh, US One, right on the corner. And it was it was a place that was like all based on locals. Uh, then obviously in season was all about the tourists, the people that came down there that flooded the flooded the venue. So you had six months of chaos and yep. six months of just regular busy. 
Yes. Um, and so just feeling the pressure, feeling the burn, that it got me really going. It kind of, for me, made, made me uh, understand that it's more than just any one position. It's more than just the front of the house and the back of the house. That it's actually just this beautiful dance that happens when somebody walks in the front door. What kind of experience you're going to get is reliant upon so many different people to execute and make that vision come to life. Yeah. So for paint the vision for people that don't know about expediting on the line, it's like being in front of an orchestra, uh, sweating, yelling, and coordinating everyone's meals that go out nicely to the table. Uh, how did you feel when you were doing that? Especially the first time it can get nuts. Well, I mean, the first time I think I got yelled at by everybody in the kitchen because <laughs> I probably didn't really fully grasp the timing difference between somebody making a salad and somebody making a steak. And so I was calling for things, just like kind of leading this orchestra. And they looked at me like, you're crazy. There's no way I'm getting a medium steak the same time as the salad's prepared. So I kind of had to learn probably from from yelling back from some people that really enjoyed it probably more yes. than I enjoyed receiving it. Yeah. And, and we really just, you know, we had, we had a great time with it. Ultimately at the end of the day, uh, when you're in the trenches with somebody and you're dealing with that stress in the moment, and there is a, that four to five to six, sometimes longer that of stress times afterwards, the, the best thing is, is kind of looking back. It's the end of the day. Uh, you get to press reset, you hug, you, if you smoke, you go out in the back and have a cigarette together and all is forgotten. No matter what was said during the heat of the battle, it's all forgotten. And you really become close and develop great relationships with people. Uh, some that I still have to this day, even, you know, 20, almost 20 years later. Yes, that bonding and the, the heat of the moment. Those are some of the special bonds you get, especially when you're on the line together. Yeah, I love hearing yeah. that. And so when do you start transitioning into leadership roles uh, in your career? So it was, you know, I, I realized I did not want to live down in South Florida for the rest of my life. So I uh, made the decision to move back up north, uh, mm -hmm. came back up to New York. Uh, I grew up in a suburb just outside of New York. So for me, New York was, was everything and there was nothing else. I got a little dabble of, of Miami and loved every minute of it. Uh, mm -hmm. and then, but really, New York was the future. Uh, so came up here, started working in... Uh, places that was like a uh, had a little more nightlife element, so it had some lounge, had some restaurant, had some lounge, some nightlife, and so for me that was my first. I really, I really seeked out a job there more because I went there with friends for a birthday party, and I was like, wow, this place is really fun. I'm having fun here. Why mm -hmm. can't I create this fun environment for everybody else? And so I said, oh, I'm sure I can do that. I have enough skills. So I went into the exact same place. I happened to run into the guys there and I said, listen, I was here on Saturday and I had a great time. Uh, are you guys looking to hire anybody? And he goes, ironically, yes, I am. So uh, I walked in there, started out. Uh, I was like, I'll take, I'll take something. It didn't matter to me at that point. I knew getting my foot in the door, I would, I would grow through that company, grow through everything and, and, and build myself up. So they hired me within three days of me walking in that front door, knocking on their door, started working there. And what did you have to start at? Because a lot of places like that that are cool places, you just start low on the totem pole. Was that the case for you, or did you start oh, off yeah. higher up? I, I was I was a floor manager, and when I say a floor manager, it meant everything that nobody else wanted to do was my responsibility, and everything that everybody wanted to do, I wasn't allowed to. So that was how <laughs> I started. Uh, and what was the name of the place that you were working? It was uh, it's called PS Four Hundred and Fifty. It was on uh, Park Avenue South, and 
between 30th and 31st Street. A real big after work crowd uh, really cut its teeth on just creating like a fun after work environment, which was no frills. There was no cover charges. There was no bottle service. You just walked in there. You ordered some food. You had some drinks and hopefully more drinks than food at that point of the day. And then you just really enjoyed yourself. But really made some some friendships with some of the clientele because again I had this opportunity to be the person who's on the floor and a lot of mm-hmm. times you hear the person the floor manager uh, well what are their responsibilities right in my opinion a floor manager's responsibility is just that you are on the floor you're taking care of everything you're anticipating guest needs uh, and just continuing through that process so I, I did that and I really loved it met great people people in all different industries and uh, really just understood to myself that I'm in the right place. And when I said in the right place, it didn't necessarily mean that location, that venue, that restaurant, but in the right place, meaning the hospitality industry. Right. And you do a good job there because you end up becoming the general manager of that Mm -hmm. location. Right. And so you do it pretty quickly. It seems like almost just under three years, you move up from floor manager GM of a place is, is hard to do sometimes, especially when you know everybody. Yeah, it was, uh, listen, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. Nothing, nothing is easy moving up. All right. But I had, there were some great mentors that I worked with at that, in that company, ones that laid out a great blueprint for me that kind of help and, and learn. And then the other thing was I was eager to do it in my mind. It was, uh, learn, continue to educate myself or become stagnant. And that was never, that was never something for me. So I continued to learn, went through the whole uh, trials, tribulations, mistakes, a lot of mistakes, uh, but learned for every single one of them and came out as the GM. And uh, still, again, same thing. You go through this, these crazy times with people in this business, especially as you're moving up the ranks, sometimes faster than some other people. And you have to uh, keep a great relationship. You have to keep a great working environment. And, and that place is very good at hiring the right people, whether it was the general manager hiring it from the support staff hiring. It was just, it was a really, they did a really good job of bringing in the right talent. And you learned a lot. You really developed there and then you make a move. And so I'm I'm always curious about this move because it's with a place that you're with for a long time. You end up going to the one group and for listeners, the one group is the parent company of STK and I think Kona Grill. Is there any others I'm missing in there? Uh, there were a lot more. There were a lot more at that time, of, but STK is probably the most, right? STK, I think, yeah. is probably the most well known. And is that the where you joined as general manager? So I joined with a new a new venue that they were launching. It was called the Collective. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was based at Little West 12th Street, right in the Meatpacking District, right down the block from the first ever STK on Little West 12th Street. And this was basically going to be the first attempt at a spinoff. And so the, all the successes of STK just a couple feet away, essentially. It was about 200 feet away. Uh, all the successes there were going to be replicated. And it was very successful. And myself coming in as the general manager, the only way for me to grow was to move properties. Mm-hmm. So after about 18 months of being there, the company was tagged to do the, the food and beverage for the brand new Gansboro Hotel opening up on Park Avenue, which was, was home to some celebrities that went there all the time. And they really needed somebody that the company trusted, because I'd been with them for 18 months at this point, really proved myself, uh, to go over there and kind of head up the F&B program in that hotel, which was certainly not an easy task, but one I was happy to kind of take on. And so was there for about 
uh, two years. So now it's been about three and a half years with the company. Mm-hmm. There was an opening in the corporate office. And yes. the opening was for a uh, corporate beverage director. And so that's what I want to ask you before you jump into that. So yeah. when you're running around the Gansevoort, which we had the Gansevoort here shortly in Miami Beach, it was a cool mm-hmm. brand. Mm-hmm. I don't think, is it still in New York? Or they all yeah, shut they, down? Yeah, They're yeah, still there. Yeah, okay. Exactly. I, I like that brand. So you're running around there. Do you start to focus on beverage? Is that like your focus that you liked? Or that's why I wanted to make sure we line this up for the next jump. Yeah. So, you know, that the hotel... Uh, had a, a full-service dining restaurant, a great Italian concept called Asolina, and the ground floor, which was about 75% people that were not in the hotel would dine there. Mm-hmm. About 25% of people from the hotel would go in there. Uh, and that number may actually be uh, skewed a little different. It might be more like 85, 15. Uh, but then the rooftop was basically three floors. And anybody that knows any rooftop property in New York City, you know, when it gets going, it gets going. Uh, and they were really smart about the way that they designed it. So there was a one full floor that was fully interior, and it was subdivided into two. One half was a nightclub, and one half was like an event space. And then as you get to the, the top floor, there was a pool and outdoor space and kind of loungy and patios and decks. So it was designed for beverage consumption. Yes, heavy bottle service, lots of drinking. <laughs> Yeah. You want this yeah. table? It's three grand, this bottle, right? <laughs> Back then it was much cheaper. Back okay. then it was much cheaper. Now I couldn't even imagine. So, but that led me to just kind of really understanding where the profits came from. Uh, really understanding that that by keeping a one a less than 1% fluctuation in my beverage cost means that I'm keeping the company in line and profitable. And looking at the numbers very differently. Because now, you know, when I first become a general manager... I think I know everything and I don't know anything. Mm-hmm. And then I have a couple more years under my belt. And now all of a sudden I'm starting to learn even more getting that experience. Fast forward now to the third time. And now I'm like, okay, now I'm seeing things differently. I'm now removing myself. I'm looking from like a bird's eye view. I'm able to kind of pick out little differences here that can make an impact to the bottom line. And really looking at this as a, a true business. Mm-hmm. And so by doing that, those were probably the exact words I used when I was talking to like the, the senior leadership of the company. When I said, you know, I think I want to pursue this angle. It was, so you, yeah. So you become the corporate beverage manager for yeah. the one group and then your life I'm sure changes, right? Cause you're doing a lot of late nights, especially as a GM. Did you become a Monday to Friday office guy looking at numbers? Well, how does your life change in that moment? <laughs> uh, the Monday through Friday office guy was a little after the fact. I still was needing to really, you know, see it with my own eyes. Because I think that I think the best way to truly make an impact into any of the businesses in hospitality is to really get your hands in the mustard, to really just be in the trenches with the team, to ask the right questions, to be able to listen and hear the answers. And so that's what I spent a lot of time doing for the first, let's call it, year of me in this role was not necessarily looking at this and saying, if I, if I move this needle, you know, uh, one degree to the left and I'm making X dollars, it was really just understanding what the baseline needs were of the businesses before I can do that. Mm -hmm. So I spent the first year of just truly doing that, asking the right questions, setting up structure so that we had uh, the right reporting that asked the right questions. So I was able to get the answers even in advance of talking to somebody. 
And then as we started growing as a business, which was a rapid growth, it went from, I think it was three SDKs. One was in Miami Beach. One yep. was in Los Angeles. One was in New York. Something ended up being something like 32. Yeah, like out of nowhere. <laughs> it just, uh, I used to make a joke that the CEO at the time would fly over a city, would look outside of the airplane and says, oh, that looks nice. We should open one there. I remember um, Miami Beach had one, then just a couple miles away, downtown Miami had one. And yeah, just like, all right. It was like little mushrooms popping up at some point. And honestly, it was it was a great time. It was uh, arguably the, the most that I've learned through any one company came from that company. And it was probably because it was in multiple different roles that I worked within the same umbrella, but it was also multiple different brands under the same umbrella. Yeah, so that was my next question. Were you working on multiple brands in your roles as you grew? Because you're there seven years and you're yep. corporate beverage manager and you become director of national beverage and bar programs and then senior director of operations overseeing the beverage partnerships. So at that level, you're controlling a lot of business. <laughs> yeah, at, at the time it was about $127 million in revenue. So if you, think, if you think going back to the late 90s, uh, with mom's golden griddle, which if it did $2 million a year, that was like a great year for them. And now you're looking at this position that this career jump where now it's like hundred dollars in revenue that I have uh, direct purview over that to me, that was like, it was exciting, yes. it was exciting. And you, I didn't even realize it got to that big because it just was a natural growth. It was, you know, we had, it was a solid team. I won't, I won't take credit for, 10% of it because the team that we, that was put together, that was on the road together, that was kicking and screaming and hugging and kissing throughout the entire process was a team that I still text with on a regular basis, talk on the phone with on a regular basis. Somebody that was, I did this with this growth program with was a, was a groomsman in my wedding. That's the kind of relationships that kind of we, we have with that company. And Everybody just knew each other. It was, it was almost like a like a professional, you know, basketball team where you don't even have to look where to pass the ball. You just know that the person is going to be there, and that's kind of how we were. And I think we needed to be in order to be as nimble as we were. God, I love hearing that. That seems like a great culture you guys were in the middle of, especially building it from such few places to the amount that you had at, at its peak. And mm -hmm. so, when you're at that level, you know, I want to share with the listener because we haven't really talked about this, but. As a director, like I've been director of food and beverage at one property, not overseeing multiple. And I had vendors dropping in, calling me, getting their product to me any which way they could figure out just to get them on menus. How did you handle that and then choose the ones that actually made your beverage lists just for someone who may be going through that now? Yeah, I mean, I think first was identifying what the strategy was going to be for us. Uh, and because if you're going to go through the amount of growth that we were going through, we would we would say basically, and this was a general rule of thumb, but it was like 70% would be a quote unquote core menu, and then 30% would be local discretion. Uh, and in so doing that, as we're opening up, let's say we have a property in New York, now we're opening up one in Denver, Colorado, I already know what 70% of the products are going to be. So the only thing I need to secure locally is about 30%. And by allowing the team on the ground to own that 30%, they had true buy-in into everything we were doing. Uh, the chef in the kitchen would own 30% of the menu, 
uh, of the food menu. The, mm -hmm. the general manager and beverage director or whoever else was in charge of the beverage program of that location, they would own 30% of the bar program. And so all of a sudden, initially you come out of the gate and you have these people that are vested in the product and the outcome. And it was, it was really a great key to success. Uh, now, in terms of what products we selected to be part of our core list, that was probably took us about a year to get it all wrong. Yep. And then it took us another year to figure out what went wrong with it. And then by the third year, I think we were in a really good place. We, we went to companies that had, you know, luxury alignment, yes. as I'll call it. So companies that were, had the same culture that we had, that were in the same network that we had, and that were doing the same things that we were doing. From when we would go and do Super Bowls at, you know, all across the country because we're a premier hospitality group, we look around and you see what beverages are being served in that area and that environment to those people, what those people like to drink. That's what we're cultivating. It became a true lifestyle brand and it became a true lifestyle. And so you're there at this company with the one group you've developed there. You've gone to the corporate level seven years there, but you make a change or maybe the change happens to you. What ends up happening that you end up joining one of the mo well, most well-known <laughs> hospitality groups? Yeah, it, the, the growth. So in, in right shortly before I moved over to uh, Tau Group, uh, which is a company that you were just referring to, yep. uh, the one group went public. So we took this private company that was, we call all the shots, and now we have auditors that are checking everything that we're doing. And for good reason. And I appreciate the entire process. Learned a ton through that as well. It also meant that there was outside investors that were looking at the numbers. And so the company ended up making a decision, and it was a true business decision, to cut a large sum of payroll. And I, at that point, I was one of the people that was eliminated. Uh, I was well looked, I was well looked after. Uh, I said, so I'm talking very highly about the company. So I, yep. it was, uh, it was, it was a, I get it. It was the, the right time, right place for everybody. And uh, my number was called. And thankfully for myself, I create a great, a great network of people in the, in this business and met a lot of people along the way. That it wasn't more than you know three weeks before I found myself in the arms of somebody else. That's great to hear because a lot of people who are in that start getting down on themselves and start like, "Wow, I can't believe that happened." But you know, maybe you had that for an hour or two, or maybe a day. Did you start looking right away and say, "Hey, I'm going to get back on my feet with the right place"? Was it any place, or was it like, "Hey, I want to be at a, a well-known brand"? I think I probably took a week of just decompressing. Mm -hmm. not thinking about anything, played a lot of golf and said, you know what, this is me time, which I probably haven't had at this point in many, many years. I had some me time and then, you know, just talking to the network of people that I've developed over the time, there was, there was definitely a need for the skill set that I had for, for this company. And so I think it was probably you know, a total of three weeks. Uh, and then I was you know already starting to work again. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, it wasn't like it was, it was a long thing. It was one week of definite decompression and then probably two weeks to like, okay, I, that was fun. Now let's get back into it and right. let's really do what I love the most. And at the, at the time, that was shortly after the, the Tau Group was sold or sorry, bought by Madison Square Garden. 
Right. It was probably uh, like a couple of weeks afterwards, actually, when I started with them. So what was it like making that transition from being in a place seven years then joining this brand? Was it kind of a, a culture shock or was it like, hey, this hospitality is hospitality. They're just different kinks. No, you know, I think the reason why it was so easy for me to, to jump into that company is because it's basically the same culture. The people that are there are like all in on hospitality. There's a level of work ethic. There's a level of just genuine, authentic hospitality that comes with those companies that Mm -hmm. if you have that hospitality in your heart, then it's such an easy transition. You don't have to worry about it. Yes, every company does things a little bit different. So there's always that learning curve. But in terms of being a part of the culture, it was a very easy transition. So what was your days like there? Because they have so many brands in Tao Group and so many locations. What was it like for you working with them? So I was I was tasked with uh, the Moxie Hotels in New York City. It was mm-hmm. a brand new partnership which just formed between Tao Group and the Lightstone Group uh, to open several Moxie Hotels in, in New York. And so it wasn't to focus on the brand Tao, it wasn't focused on the brand Labo. Those were established brands. It was to kind of launch some new brands in the city and, uh, and, and basically try something new with it, with a, a Moxie Hotel, which is truly a Marriott right. partnership. Yes. And single venue operators who are not necessarily <laughs> yeah. hotel operators. There's a little bit of a shock there, you know, especially when you're directed by one of the biggest uh, hotel companies in the world. And so, so there's definitely a decent learning curve there with, you know, we can do things our way, but Marriott also wants their way. So right. it, was, it, was, it was great. And honestly, there were some great people on the hotel side that were very supportive over kind of the, they really had a good understanding of F&B brings hotel guests and hotel guests bring F&B. Right. And so how do we create a great synergy between us? And so it's a free flow and that there's never a finger that gets pointed. Hey, this is a, this is a hotel issue. This is a food and beverage issue, but this, this, this is our issue. And, you know, we kind of, that's the approach we really took from myself and my team on the food and beverage side and from the hotel team on their side too. It was always just, it's our problem. It's our, we'll find our solution. Um, yeah. It was great. It was, it was refreshing. It sounds like it's gotta be challenging too, because like you said, Marriott, a lot of standards you gotta hit, a lot of procedures you gotta hit. It's almost like if you're entrepreneurial, like don't come over here, but then Tau Group's the other way. It's like very entrepreneurial, make memories for people that are coming there. Was it a challenge at first for those clash of kind of ideals coming together or was it ways that you guys figured out at the beginning how to make it happen? No, I think, I think, you know, everybody wants what's best for the guest, right? So if you take, if everybody takes a step backwards, and I think this is a really good way that it was approached from both Tau Group as a whole and I think Marriott as a whole, the guest experience is first and foremost. Right. As long as you're nailing that, the other little things you can figure out a way to work around. And now that, that was truly how it went. It was when somebody walks in the front door, whether it's through the, the, uh, the rooftop entrance, whether it was from the restaurant entrance, whether it was from the hotel front doors, what does that experience look like? And how does it, how does it synergize throughout the entire duration of their stay? Uh, and so that was from a, single, from a single property perspective, that was great. 
Now all of a sudden you kind of cross brand with, hey, we have Tao Group as our food and beverage partner. Oh, you've heard of that place? Great, well, let me see if I can get our partners to set you up. So from a hotel perspective, they're now offering something else to their hotel guests outside of just what's in the single unit. It is New York City after all. There's millions and millions of options. And then from, from the food and beverage perspective, there's a great hotel to stay in. There's a brand new one that's gonna be opening up in six or eight or 10 months from now, short, you know, not too far away. And that's gonna have different brands in it. So you kind of get to kind of you know, create this experience from scratch almost with, with, a, with a very solid backing. I love it. And so you have all this experience, you're doing the part with the Moxie and with Tao, and then you make a move. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm excited to hear about this move because this is the part of your story I'm most interested in. You make your first stop, we'll say, mm -hmm. so we don't ruin the story, uh, with the Lure Group. And so for people not in New York, Give us the 30-second download on what the Lure Group is when you joined. So the Lure Group had uh, two main brands, Slate, which is basically an institution, been around for a very long time, and Clinton Hall, which is a new and up-and-coming brand that had, at that point, probably about two or three locations. So that was kind of my entrance into this company. So I've gone from small to then really, really big, and then big fish in a small pocket. Mm -hmm. And at this point... Uh, the, the, my main reasons for this was now I, I've learned a lot of these lessons. Now I get to make an impact. Now I get to be the person at mom's golden griddle that hires the server and creates the future for us. Mm -hmm. and so that was, that was my true like calling at that point was here I am. I've, I've put 15 years under the belt at this point. Why not come in there and really just be that mentor? I like it. That's a good way to look at it. I like hearing that from you. So you're there, you're building this brand up, you're getting great reviews, you know, you're getting good press on, on your spot. You're there two and a half years and then you make a change, right? What, yeah. Why, why does that happen? You know, there, this opportunity to work with C3, which is a division of SBE came about. Mm -hmm. There were some obviously very talented people that had been in, in the network of the, SPE and C3 cycle. And it kind of was a brand new direction in our business. Yes. And listen, the Lore Group for me was, was home. It was home. It was, it was comfortable. We went through the pandemic together. We dealt with the highs and lows of that and the chaos and which one of us was going to be the delivery person that day and all the crazy stuff that everybody went through that you hear about from everybody in our industry. And now somebody's coming out at, with this technology piece. And how does technology play into this business that we're, that we're, I love? And from app development to kind of new ways of looking at service models to kind of creating a culinary epicenter with some like world renowned chefs. It was very hard for me to not jump at that opportunity. So listeners, and, I want to set the stage here for Evan. And Evan, you correct me if I'm wrong, because I was following along on this because I loved the concept of the ghost kitchens and the branding that they were doing. So SBE that owns SLS brands, sold SLS, 
invested big into this new brand called C3. And I forgot what the three C's stand for, but you're basically creating this platform of virtual brands that can be plugged into different places. So when you open up your Uber Eats or DoorDash, you'll see these brands that you know, and they deliver to you, but with top chefs, right? So it was all the, it was sexy. It was cool. It was awesome. And I was watching it all kind of unfold because I was trying to do that here down at the Lowe's Miami Beach Hotel at the time. They're like, Steve, slow down. We're not going to do any virtual kitchens. And I was like presenting C3 and other brands and what they were doing. I could never get it off there. So I was excited to hear about this. And I could see why you would make this jump. So now, yeah. listeners, I'll let Evan talk and you can stop listening to me talk. <laughs> Did I say it right? I think, I think they love hearing it from you. But yeah, listen, the, the vision as it was explained is very similar to what you described. It was how do you bring these amazing chefs that already are working with uh, SBE in some way, shape, or form through all of their SLS hotels and, uh, and Mondrian hotels and all the other hotels that they had. And how do you bring them together to create brands that are approachable, that are under a $20 per person average? So you're getting this amazing chef from Italy who's curating this sandwich for you, and every bite you take is better than the next one. And, and that is exposure that a lot of people don't necessarily get. Uh, and it was, it was the ability to take that model and put it anywhere in the United States because you're, because you're looking at the price point, uh, you can go into, you know, anywhere in America essentially and beyond and say, this is a, this is a top chef in the world. You have a chef Morimoto who's created this brand with us. And now you're getting to eat Morimoto quality food at a, $20 price point. If you went to a Morimoto restaurant, the price point is obviously much higher than that. Right. So just this ability to, to get this, these incredible chefs to work with this company. And then we created a culinary epicenter, which is what, how I'm referring to it, because it's truly what it was. Imagine you, you walk into the lobby of a hotel. And when you're walking into the lobby of the hotel, you look to your left, and you see something from one famous chef. And you look a little further, and there's another famous chef. And these all little restaurants, all in a row on your left side. And then when you think it's done, you turn right. And then on the right side, you have another five that are all cultivated by these, these chefs, which you would never have access to. And then you bookend it by these two, like, renowned restaurants in, like, a Katsuya, which is obviously all over the world, and a Casa Danny from Michelin chef Danny Garcia. And, you know, when, you, when I take a step back now and even talk about it, I still get, like, inspired by it because there really is just, it's an incredible thing that was being put together. And so all of these brands were not only to be able to be brick and mortar, but they were also set up to be virtual kitchens. So if there was a hotel operator that wanted to, that, had a, a Spanish restaurant and they had a, like a Mexican restaurant. I'm just making this up, obviously. And they wanted to bring in something that was along the burger line. Then we had three or four options for with a chef attachment. Mm -hmm. If you wanted something Asian, uh, then we had something in an Asian suite of like three or four brands that we could bring to you that all cross-utilized ingredients. It was so very smart the way it was put together that I felt honored to be a part of that. And that that's the real reason why I needed to do it. I love it. And so I'm not sure what happened, but I started seeing some of my friends that were at the company leave 
And I'm assuming it's probably similar reasons why you made a change. But why did you make the change back to the lure group? Back to the lure group. So, you know, like I was call- referring to the lure group before, it was home. And a lot of the reasons why I love the lure group and called it home, not only was the brands Clinton Hall and Slate, because they are great brands, but also the people that are around them. And they, it was almost like a, a parental moment. As, mm-hmm. as now I'm, I'm a parent, I have two kids, I, I can see my future doing the same thing. You kind of let your kids go out and experience things mm-hmm. so they can gain the knowledge and experience on their own and then kind of come back. And then as parents, you get to kind of reap some of the benefits of that as well. And so uh, I, I went out, I explored, I learned great things. I've come back in there. I've taken everything that I've learned from the multiple different things. And now I have the opportunity to apply it all together and really take a stance and grow the business. Uh, grow it both internally with same store sale growth, but both externally and opening new properties. And, uh, and while opening new properties, being able to tap into some of the network that I've now created of these virtual brands. I love hearing it. So now you're back home as chief operating officer for the Lure Group. I'm not asking for a five-year plan, but what are you most excited about in the next 12 to 24 months and what you're doing? Well, we have a couple of new projects that are about to start surfacing. So I'm hopeful that those get finalized quickly. Uh, one of which will probably be a launch of a brand new brand, which is a hybrid between like a Clinton Hall and a Slate. Mm-hmm. So taking the best things from the Slate model, taking the best things from the Clinton Hall model and kind of bringing that to life. Also knowing that, you know, everybody has a Slate story. Everybody that's been to New York has a Slate story. Some people's it's private events. Some people's it's nightlife. Some people's it's gaming. But most of the time, it's a little fuzzy because you had a great time while you were there. <laughs> but everybody, if you ask anybody about their Slate story, it's going to have a little bit of one of those three things into it. No, no I love it. I love looking at the website and... It's got me excited because I'm coming up there in August or September, so I'm going to have to let you know. But they say it's an adult playground, games for everyone. And so it looks like awesome food, you know, great drinks, board games, big games, like life-size games, slides coming down from places. Like, it looks pretty amazing. Imagine walking into a place, you hear great music, there's great sound, smells, people around you are all having a great time and you walk right in and there's a slide that takes you from upstairs to downstairs where when you walk out, you're inside of like a gaming Mecca. That's the experience that we're trying to create and recreate with new brands that we're opening. God, I love it. See, we need that down here in Miami beach. We don't have enough of that kind of spot. So you let me know if you need some help coming down here, we can connect you to the right people. Let's do it together. That sounds like a lot of fun. Well, Evan, you truly have been in all types of industries. You've been in brand names that are huge and others, like you said, more mom and pop. And you're going to grow this brand, I know it, into one of those huge names. But if young Evan was starting as a server on your team today, what advice are you giving young Evan? Taking in everything. Keep your eyes and ears open. Keep your mouth closed and write everything down. Write it down 10 times, remember it all, store it somewhere, eventually it'll come up. It's the same like you can get a black belt when you're five years old. It doesn't mean you're beating somebody who's 30-year-old black belt. 
you got it's going to take time to develop all the skills be patient i think that's a great piece of advice for everyone who's starting out in the industry well evan if somebody wants to reach out or connect with you what's the best way for them to do that my email address my first initial e last name pachowski p like peter u c h a l s k y at the lore group l u r e g r o u p dot com well evan i'm very grateful you spent this time with us i know how busy you are building that company and we appreciate you spending the time thank you very much steve happy to be here this podcast is brought to you by biscayne coffee biscayne coffee was founded with a giving spirit and a big idea to enjoy delicious coffee roasted in Miami while helping save Biscayne Bay and the animals that live there. As a former food and beverage director, I can assure you these are some of the best quality beans on the planet. 10% of every coffee sold is donated to nonprofits to help preserve Biscayne Bay for all to enjoy. Visit BiscayneCoffee.com today and use promo code MENTOR at checkout to save 10% on your first order. Drink good coffee and create a good outcome.